If you guys would turn to Second Peter chapter two, and uh, we'll read the whole thing. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought flood upon the world, the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing and was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping Sorry, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Good morning. Um, let me welcome, glad you're here, happy Father's Day. This is my second Father's Day, but as I told Brad Hankins this morning, um, Last year at this time, my daughter was about three months old, and I could contribute nothing to her. And fathers, if you've been there with me, you understand, um, you know, mama can feed, mama can nourish and care for and put to sleep, and, and uh, baby wants mama, and daddy stands there and says, what can I do? I, I can grab 
towels or I can grab whatever, you know. So um, this year is a lot more fun. Caroline is 15 months old and she's into everything. And so uh, happy Father's Day. If you're there with me and you're you're just uh, loving life, I hope you are. And um, but today you may have heard that text and thought, this is not going to be a Father's Day sermon, is it? That's a heavy, heavy text, and I, I just want to kind of preface this with a couple of things. One, I love this church, and I love our pastors and their commitment to the Bible, and one thing I have learned from them is there is great benefit, and, and many churches around here don't recognize this, but there is great benefit in just going verse by verse through the Bible, just picking a chunk of Scripture and having to deal with whatever the author says, not whatever my pet topic is, not whatever I want to want to talk about that particular Sunday or whatever's been churning in my mind, but to go to the text and say, what did the apostles say to us? Let, we have to wrestle with it. And there are some hard things we're going to get to in this text. But but just so you know, it, that's that's why we're this is not necessarily a Father's Day sermon because we're just dealing with what's next in Second Peter uh, for the past Three weeks, and the next three weeks we are going through Second Peter, and um, we're just taking it verse by verse. But, but also, some of you have been here with us the past few weeks going through that, and you're doing a little math in your head, and you're saying, wait a minute, last week we did nine verses, and it was about 45 minutes, and we just read 22 verses, and you're kind of working that out, and I, I just want you to know, we've been going verse by verse through Second Peter, but today's going to have to be a little bit different, because we have such a big chunk to cover, um, and so we're going to kind of come up to about 10,000 feet and cruise over the landscape today, instead of, you know, being down in the trenches digging through it, so so fear not. Um, but I think we will see some good things from Peter, and, and I am, uh, I was really intimidated by this passage I knew it was coming. I've known it's coming for several months. And um, then this week when I had to actually sit down and grapple with it, uh, the Lord has done a lot of good things in my heart, and I hope he does the same for you this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you for your word, and we are listening to it now as we just sang. Make that our hearts, Father. We don't come here to be seen. We don't come here to make friends and to build our businesses and to, um, and to profit temporarily in this life. Father, we come to fellowship with your people and to hear from you from your word. And we are listening this morning and we want to be transformed and we want to believe what we hear. I pray that that's the heart of everyone in this room. And it's my heart and, and I pray that you would deliver this morning, that you would give us yourself, that you would show us yourself. May we see your glory, your majesty, your holiness, your righteousness. And um, Father, may we rejoice that you are not a weak God, that you, you care for us and you care for your glory. And we, we rejoice in that. And so show us that from your word this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so heavy text. We're going to dig in in a second, but I just want to frame this. I want to recap where we are in Second Peter, okay? So we've been going through Second Peter, and if you remember last week, we said Peter's intention last week was to show himself as authoritative and the apostles as authoritative, um, that he wanted to prove that they are rooted in the historic tradition of the prophets of the Old Testament, the, the inspired prophets that wrote by the Spirit of God. And now these hearers that Peter is writing to, 
they're hearing different stories. Peter and the apostles are saying one thing, and these false teachers are saying something else. And they're saying, who do we believe? How do we know which one is authentic? How do we know which one to trust? And so that was last week. Peter said, hey, you can trust us because we stand in this tradition of the, of the prophets who were inspired, and we were with Christ, and we saw him. We were eyewitnesses. And remember, we saw... In Ephesians, that God has built his church on those two pieces. He has built his church, or three pieces, on the prophets in the Old Testament, their prophecy, their proclaiming of Christ before he came to earth, and then the, uh, the apostles who walked with him and saw the fulfillment of all those prophecies, and Christ himself being the cornerstone of the church. That's what God has given us. And we, we made a connection that this is Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, Jesus Christ throughout the whole thing, holding it all together. And so that's why we come to the word to understand what Jesus has to say to us. And so um, that's where we are. So if you come here today with the impression that the Bible is just all this, it's just all Second Peter 2, condemnation and, and fury and wrath and, you know, the apostles calling people out and telling them they're going to be destroyed I encourage you to go back and read the broader context because there's so much hope in Second Peter. There's so much hope in the beginning that we are, we are given the divine nature through the promises of God, that God has rescued us through the knowledge of him from the defilements of the world, from the destruction that is in the world. And so um, there's a lot of hope there, but necessarily Peter has to deal with these other people. Okay, so... His hearers are hearing these two stories. Peter says, no, you should listen to us. We're authoritative. And let me tell you what to think about these guys. Let me tell you what's going on with these guys. And so he's going to spend today uh, showing us what he thinks of these false prophets or these false teachers. Um, so that's, that's where we've come from and that's where we're going. And so I just I want to be careful with this because it, it is heavy. But I want you to hear me up front. That what is at stake here is not just a good, happy, fulfilling life for people. Okay, What is at stake biblically? The reason these guys are passionate and zealous is because eternity is at stake. And the glory of the righteous God of the universe is at stake here. That people are defaming his name. They are saying false things about him and misrepresenting him. And Peter cares about that. He's not on an, egotist, on a, on an ego trip. He's not on a high horse. He cares about these people understanding who God is. So that's where we're going to go today and see, see what Peter has to say. So let's just jump right in. Um, the first thing that we see in the text, let me put this down. That's not symbolic. Uh, I have all the scripture that I'm going to read today in these notes, and so I only have limited stand space here. Um, so the first thing we see in the text, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 1, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And so the first thing he says is false teachers are an inevitability. Okay, It's inevitable that they are coming, that they... They will try to undermine this message that we, the apostles, delivered. 
Okay, and he's connected the apostles again with the Old Testament prophets. And he says, just as they had false prophets who tried to undermine what they were saying about the nature of God and what he was going to do, in the same way, we apostles will have people trying to undermine us, trying to say that, that what we're saying is not true. And he says, these false teachers will attempt to distract and deceive, and they will succeed. They will lead many astray. He says, um, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Okay, and that's a, that's a scary thing, but here we see that many theme. We've said it, I think, every week so far in Second Peter. There's this many theme of deceitfulness, that we are called to go to the Word, to see the truth, and to fight, to ward off deceitfulness, that we are told lies. We see this deception again where Peter says that they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, and they will exploit you with false words, that people will come and they will, they will deliberately deceive you, okay? Um, remember last week we talked about one of the winsome things about the apostles is this open-handed sincerity, that they just say, like Paul says, hey, there are other people who, who saw Jesus, who know Jesus. Go talk to them. If you don't believe me, go talk to them. Don't, don't just, I mean, if you doubt me, I, I have witnesses backing me up. I'm not just making this up. And we see that in Luke. And Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of this whole thing. There's just open-handed sincerity. Not so with the false teachers. They are deceitful. They are undermining. They are deliberately shielding um, who they really are and what's going on, what, they're, what they really believe. And uh, Peter says, be careful. They are deceivers. They are wolves pretending to be sheep, and they will mislead many. And he says that they will bring in destructive heresies. One other note about this morning. There's so much text here, I'm not going to keep bouncing back and reading the verses, but I'm just walking through verses. So, so if you want to look at the text, you'll see that I'm just kind of following it chronologically here. So he says that they will bring in destructive heresies. And what is he referring to in that verse? Um, that they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, brought, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And I think there are several characteristics of these guys that we can learn from this morning. Um, the first thing he says right there in that verse, that they even deny the master who bought them. Now, it's possible that he is talking about just a general denying of Jesus. You know, Jesus was not real. He wasn't authentic. He wasn't legit, um, whatever. But I think in the broader context, we've seen this kind of theme of them denying the return of Jesus, that he, he will not come back in power. He wasn't necessarily God. He won't return in a second coming. And so I think that's probably what they're denying. Because if you remember, in chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says that, we apostles weren't making up this story about the coming and power of Jesus in glory. So talking about his second coming, his return. And then in chapter 3, we'll see these same folks saying, where is the promise of his coming? Jesus said he's coming back. You apostles claim he's coming back. I don't see him. I'm looking around. I don't see him. And so that's one piece of their heresy. But Peter's going to deal with that at length next week. So if you want to hear the answer to that, come back next week. Um, and we'll deal with that in chapter 3. But notice what else he tells us about this heresy. He says, they will bring in destructive heresies, in the next verse, and many will follow their sensuality. So, another part of their error was this emphasis on sexual permissiveness. 
Okay. Uh, in fact, look at the phrases. Let's just go through the passage real fast. Look at some of these phrases that Peter uses to describe them. He says in verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. In verse 10, he describes them as those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. He says in verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Verse 18, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. It it was difficult for me this week not to build this entire sermon on that theme. Um, I, I just think about the emphasis Peter put in verse in chapter 1 on holy, godly living as the sign of authenticity, the watermark of those who have been redeemed by Jesus. And I just think this is worthy of us talking about as a culture. We need to get this on the table and see what is the, the New Testament sexual ethic. Okay, it's, it's not as stringent as some people want us to believe. Christians don't hate sex. But it's the best analogy I've ever heard is, is it's like fire. Tommy Nelson says it's like fire. And in it, in the right context, in a fireplace, it warms your home. It comforts you. It provides a lot of pleasure. But you play with it in the living room on the carpet, right? It's going to burn your house down. It's a dangerous thing. But we, we treat it with respect. And, and when I look at our culture and I think there's no respect, it, it is treated as just a right that I can use anywhere, anytime, whatever I want, whenever I want, and don't tell me different. And, and I just think we need to talk about that. But our goal is to get through this passage. So we're not going to do that. But, but Peter says that a distinguishing mark of these false teachers, these guys who are undermining the name of Jesus, is that they trivialize sexuality. They trivialize it. They make it a game. And he says they're, they're like children playing with fire. And I, I read this and I think one thing that really encourages me as a 21st century Christian is that as the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Okay, If you think our cultural problem with sex started in the 60s with the sexual revolution, read some history. Okay, Find a history book and go back and look. This has been going on since the beginning of time. And if you read like New Testament writings or ancient writings and you think, wow, we have come so far as humanity. Look how far we've progressed. I just say, open your eyes, look around you. The things that plagued those guys are the same things that plague our culture. We are dealing with the same issue. The symptoms may look a little different, but we are dealing with a core brokenness. Still, throughout history, we see these same themes. Um, One of my favorite quotes I've said here several times, G.K. Chesterton says, so many people want to talk about the innate goodness of humanity. And they, they look at the Bible and they say, the Bible says people are bad. I don't believe people are bad. And Chesterton says, you know, the fact that people are broken and bad is the only thing we can really prove empirically throughout history. If you read history, that's the one thing you can't miss, that people are broken, right? And, um, and so it encourages me when I look around and I see some of our, our cultural pitfalls that I think these are no different we we are you know we have gone as a human race on ups and downs and when we're okay in one area we're completely fallen in another and when we shore up that area we let this one collapse and that's just the way it is and that's the way it's going to be until God returns and establishes his rule here on earth but that's another sermon 
Um, but it just encourages me. So, so that's one thing. These false teachers were emphasizing a trivial view of sex. And, and if you read the New Testament, you see, no, no, it should be held in honor. It should be undefiled and cared for and treated with respect. Um, another thing Peter tells us about these false teachers is that, is that they are motivated by greed. He says in verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And in verse 14, they have hearts trained in greed. And they have followed the way of Balaam, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Okay, here we get a picture of people who, who want money and power, and they will abuse whoever to get it. That's a, a scary thing. So we see they're denying the return of Christ. They're misleading weak believers with the enticement of promiscuity, sexual liberty. And they are arrogant and boastful, as we're going to see in verse 10. And Peter says they are motivated by greed. And now maybe you understand, in chapter 1, when Peter comes strong out of the gate with emphasis on godly living, you need to be godly, holy in your external living the reason he does that is because he knows what these people are dealing with, and he starts addressing these false teachers right out of the gate. He doesn't hesitate. He says, listen, you need to rest on God's promises, and that will create a holy life. And when you see people telling you that they're following God or that you should follow them as they follow God, but there's no evidence of them truly following what we apostles have delivered to you, you need to be careful. And, and so that's an application point for us. We'll come back to in a few minutes. But that's a good, a good filter that you can run teaching through. When you hear people teaching in the culture, and, and everybody's teaching, everybody has something to say. Okay? When you hear these people assert their worldview, assert what you should believe as true, from Kim Kardashian to John Piper, whatever they say is their ultimate purpose, and however they talk about the world, you need a filter to run that through and say what's true and what is deceitful. Okay? And, and Peter says the teaching of the prophets and the apostles is your filter. Run it through that and see if it's true. See if there's authenticity. Does it line up with what the apostles taught? So that's the false teachers. That's what they look like. Now what's going to happen to them? And starting in verse 3, he tells us what, what's going to happen to these guys. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We need to be clear about those who distort the gospel and mislead God's people. Okay, Peter says their destruction is not asleep. And he gives three examples from the Bible, of where God has enacted justice to defend his name and defend his people and punish those who are undermining what he has said. Okay, And, and he points to um, fallen angels, the ancient world, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And so let's just look at those very, very quickly. It's hard to know exactly what he's talking about with the fallen angels. Uh, scholars disagree some on, on what those are, but regardless of their identity, there are several different instances in the Old Testament where it could be fallen angels. And um, regardless of which point Peter is referencing, the issue is the same, or his goal is the same, to say that even angels who obviously knew the truth about God, they had seen God, they knew what was right, Yet they rebelled against him. Even those guys will not be spared. God has put them under chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So Peter says, don't doubt that judgment is coming. 
He also says, he references the flood. He says the ancient world, when Noah lived, that God did not spare the ancient world, but he sent a flood. And he'll use that again in chapter 3 as a comparison for God's final judgment on the world with fire. Okay, same example, God, God purifies the world, he destroys the, the evil in the world by fire, whereas with Noah it was by water, but the issue still is the same. He is enacting judgment on sin, and he will do that. And Peter says that, that the flood was a precursor to that final judgment by fire, and, and God does not withhold it. He's not, he's not just looking at these people who defame him and hate him and speak evil against him and saying, ah, oh, there's nothing I can do. You know, they're people. Their people will be people, right? No, he doesn't do that. Peter says he enacts judgment. And then finally, he points to Sodom and Gomorrah as examples of God judging those who don't honor him. And, and, it's, and if you remember that story, God poured out fire on Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed those cities, just as he will eventually pour out fire on the earth and enact judgment on all those who despise him. I think Peter's point here, and I, I love this book. I love Peter because I think there's a little bit of irony, a little bit of sarcasm here. Because remember, these people are denying that Jesus is going to come back at all in glory. And Peter says, oh, you can deny it, but when he comes back, you will feel every bit of it. He'll, it's coming for you, brother. It's coming. You can deny it all day, but not only will he come, he will come with fire. He will come with judgment. He will come with fury. He will enact justice. So, so the point is, don't, don't doubt. Don't let these guys persuade you that he's not coming. Peter says, those guys who say he's not coming, they will be under judgment when he does come. Okay. Um, he keeps describing them in verse 10. And we'll come back and tie all these pieces together. Thank you for your patience as we just kind of get the lay of the land here. Verse 10, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Who are these glorious ones? What is he talking about? Bold and willful, they don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. I told you there were some difficult things in this text. And here's one of them for us 21st century scientific age of enlightenment, you know, all all that is real I can see and touch kind of people. That's the culture we live in. And I think what he's talking about here is these guys blaspheme demons and and devils. They scoff at them. They make fun of them. And Peter says, man, they don't tremble when they do that. And even angels don't do that. The reason I think that is because Jude, if you go over to Jude, they... They look, Second Peter 2 and 3 and Jude just flow hand in hand. Okay, they, they are so, so much similar phrasing there and a similar point. And Jude says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And then he gives an example. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Oh, I wish we could go there. Um, apparently what's going on here is that these false teachers are sinning in arrogance, they're boastful, and when they are confronted with warnings, when, when people stand up and say, hey, 
That's not honoring to Jesus. You are following Satan there. Destruction is coming. Be careful. You're associating yourself with Satan by, by undermining what Jesus has taught. Apparently, these guys scoff. They laugh. They act like Satan is no big deal. I, can, I mean, why worry about him? Who cares about him? There's no fear of his power. There's no fear of his, of his might and his ability to trip them up and destroy them ultimately. And I just want to be clear here. I'm not saying that we should fear Satan. Okay? I, I, there are plenty of people in our culture who go off the deep end fearing Satan, right? And the, and the whole world becomes about angels and demons. And, and they don't even care what's going on physically anymore because they're so worried about what's going on in the spiritual realm That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the only reason we have for not fearing Satan is that God has the power and authority to crush him. Okay? God can put a a leash on him, restrain him, and say, you will only go so far. You will not do that. Like in the book of Job, God says, you can do this, but not that. And then I'll let you go a little further, but no further than this. Right, God controls him, and that's the only reason we don't fear him. Because God has promised good to us, and he controls Satan. But don't ever, don't ever presume that you can handle Satan. That you should not fear him. You should not fear his power in your own strength. Um, if it were not for God restraining him, he would eat you for lunch. Absolutely. And you would not stand a chance. And so... I came up with this example, forgetting that it was Father's Day, but I think it's a good Father's Day example. So here's your Father's Day moment in this heavy sermon. Um, Satan is like the bully on the playground, okay? And he's, he is walking around looking for wimps. He's looking for people to harass and beat up on. And being in Christ is like having your dad on the playground with you, okay? The bully's not going to mess with you. He would not dare mess with you with your father standing right there. Okay? But don't think that because he's scared of your father that you could get him alone around a corner and handle him. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Okay? So that's, that's the point I think Peter is trying to make. He says these guys act like Satan is no big deal, that he has no power or authority. They scoff at him. They blaspheme him. And even angels are hesitant to do that. They say the Lord will take care of you. They defer to the one who has the power to rule and reign over Satan. And so just be careful of that. That's another characteristic of them. And that's, that's the mistake that they're making. And out of that, this is where we get a, we're just going to have to brush through this pretty quickly. Peter launches into the harshest rebukes in the chapter. He, this is the hard stuff. This is what's, for us peace-loving, gentle Americans, this is difficult for us to hear sometimes. Peter says, these guys are irrational animals born to be caught and destroyed They are ignorant. They are blots and blemishes. They have eyes full of adultery. They are insatiable for sin. They have hearts trained in greed, and they entice unsteady souls. This is not a feel-good passage in Scripture. Just like not every sermon should be a feel-good sermon. Okay. If If you've come here this morning just to get a pat on the back, and here, you're doing good. Just keep going. You're doing good. That's not what the Bible always gives us. Okay, The main point of Scripture is not smile, Jesus loves you. 
Okay? It's not, it's not the main point. The main point of Scripture is that God is glorious, and he is holy and righteous, and he's merciful, and he's loving, and he's amazing, and he intends to make every one of those attributes known. He will make all of them known. And sometimes it's, it's by doing what he's done for us. If you are in Christ, you experience the love and mercy of God. You say, I am filled with joy because Jesus loves me. I smile because Jesus loves me. Right. But God says, I also have a just, righteous, holy side. And anyone who defiles my name, anyone who undermines my son and dishonors him. I will make that side known. I will. That's a that's a heavy thing to to be careful picking out the parts of the Bible that make you feel good. And not wrestling with, dealing with the fact that, that there is a God in the universe that you cannot handle. Right? He is big and he is mighty. And he says, I will enact judgment on the world, but here is a safe place. Go to my son. Lean on him. Rest in him. Trust in him. And all who are in him get my love and my, my mercy and my joy and my strength. But outside of him, you don't get that. Okay? Make, make no mistake about that. Um, another thing Peter says about these guys, he says they have hearts trained in greed, that they have followed the way of Balaam who loved gain from wrongdoing. This is probably the most, for, for the intellectual side of Michael Smith, who likes to wrestle with, you know, tough texts in the Bible, this was my favorite part of the week, wrestling through this passage, because... I've been reading through the Old Testament, and I just got through Numbers about a month ago. I knew Second Peter was coming. I knew he talked about Balaam. And when I got to the story of Balaam, I thought, I'm going to understand this better. I'm going to know Second Peter better after reading the story of Balaam. And so Peter says that he loved gain from wrongdoing. All right? He was greedy, that Balaam was a bad example. And so I read the story of Balaam, and Balak, the Midian... Uh, no, the Moabite king comes to Balaam and he says, come curse my enemies, curse Israel for me, and I'll pay you. I'll give you money to curse them for me. And Balaam says, I can only say what God gives me to say. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a bad guy. <laughs> um, so he turns him away at first, and then Balak comes back and says, no, no, I'll give you lots of money. Come and pronounce a, a judgment, pronounce a curse on my enemies and again, Balaam says, hey, I can only say what God tells me to say. And he even consults with the Lord, and the Lord says, go if he's calling you, but you will only say what I tell you to say. And so Balaam packs everything up. He goes with these guys, and on the road, you remember this story? He's, he's walking with his donkey, and his donkey won't go anymore, and he starts beating it. And he says, what are you doing? Keep moving. And finally, the donkey says, hey, why do you keep hitting me? Have I ever wronged you? And God opens his eyes and he sees an angel standing there. And the angel reminds him, you will only say what God gives you to say. Okay. So then Balaam goes and sure enough, he rebukes Moab and he blesses Israel. And Balak loses his mind. He gets so mad. He's like, I'm paying you to curse these guys. And Balaam says, I can't curse him. I can only say what God tells me to say. Now, where does Peter get... This guy's a bad guy. He loves gain from wrongdoing. Well, he doesn't necessarily get it from there. 
And this is why I love reading the New Testament and tracing back these references to the Old Testament. Because these guys saw things in the Old Testament that I would never see. Ever. I, I miss it. But if you just hear that part, if you just see that part, you may say, Peter missed it. Peter missed the point of that story. Look, a contradiction in the Bible. We can't trust this thing. Peter says Balaam was a bad guy. Balaam just spoke what God said to say. And then you read further, and you see that right after that story of Balaam, the author of Numbers tells the story of the Israelites at Peor. And they they started having relationships with these Moabite women and being drawn away from God and worshiping idols and worshiping false gods, worshiping Baal. And then in Numbers 31, uh, the Israelites go to the Moabites and they crush them. All right, they enact vengeance on them for all the misleading and everything that, that happened. And um, it says that the Israelites killed the Moabite kings and Balaam with them. So you have to ask, what was Balaam doing with them? And then you keep reading. And in Numbers thirty-one sixteen, Moses says, and, and the Israelites saved some of the people, which God told them not to do. He said, do away with them. And Moses says, why did you save some of the people? Behold, it was these on Balaam's advice who caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. So you read, and Peter latched onto that. And he said, look, apparently, Balaam said, I can't curse Israel for you, but I'll tell you what you can do. If you'll, if you'll kind of deceive them, get them over here, give some of your women to them, they'll fall, they'll collapse, they'll sin against the Lord, they'll give up. Why don't you do that? And so why was Balaam with these kings? And I think it's, he's there to collect his money. He's there living with them. Hey, look, you got the Israelites. Now give me my money. Let me live in comfort now with you. And so when the Israelites, when God sends them to, to enact his judgment on the Moabites, Balaam's there and he's squashed. He's out. And Peter sees that. And he says, these guys are like Balaam. They want money. They want power. They want influence. And so they will tell you whatever they need to tell you. They will deceive you. They will entice you. And they will lead you to destruction just like the Israelites at Peor if you're not careful. So that's 10 through 16. And then the last chunk of this passage he gives the clearest rebuke of the false teachers and maybe the best application for us and so let's see this and then just pick up a, a few application points and uh, we'll be done he says let me read this passage one more time because there's a lot here that's really good it says these are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm for them for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. 
So here I think Peter answers why the strong language, why this heavy language against these guys. And he says that in, in verse 19, or verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Very rarely in the Bible do you see people just outright verbally condemned for the way they're living. Okay? Very rarely do you see that. You see the Corinthian church, a lot of bad stuff going on in Corinth. And Paul said, guys, clean it up. Come on. Honor Jesus. But he doesn't say, you're going to hell. He doesn't condemn them verbally. Very rarely do we see that direct condemnation in the Bible. But where we see it most regularly is, is when people are deceiving and misleading God's people and leading them to destruction. And that's what's going on here. That's why Peter's so up in arms at these guys. Because he says, look, here's this group of Christians. They were following Jesus. They were honoring him. They were obeying him. And now you guys are, are misleading them and leading them to destruction. And so he rails against that. It's like, you do something wrong to me, I can handle it. I can check it off. You mess with my family, you're going to pay. Right? I'm going to be mad. I'm going to, it's going to elicit things out of me, language and, and just a, a, an anger that you have not seen. Okay? That's what we see biblically. Peter loves these people. And he says, while they're doing good, you can say whatever you want about me. But as soon as they start collapsing, they start doubting, they start failing and following you, and they're in danger because of you, now we need to talk. Now you've crossed the line. And so that's what's happening here. And in verse 19, he says, They promise freedom to you, but they are slaves of corruption. There's an illusion of freedom in liberty, in sexual liberty, right? I'm not constrained by anything. It's my own body. I do whatever I want with it. Okay, there's an illusion of freedom there. But Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If you think I will shirk the commandments of the Bible and I will live in freedom, in liberty, go look at Galatians. It doesn't work that way. Okay? Read Jesus. Everyone who practices a sin is a slave to sin. As the great theologian Bob Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody. Right? You're going to serve somebody or something. Don't pretend. See, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. So these people promise freedom. But they themselves can't get, give freedom because they're not free. Right? And then verse 20 and 21, the most applicable verses for us. The point is, once you know the gospel, once, once you have looked at Jesus and said, I think that's right, beware of minimizing or trivializing sin. Be careful of that. Hebrews 10:26 says, "For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a heavy thing. It's not, it's not an easy light passage but we need to be careful 
trivializing sin. We saw it in chapter 1. That Peter said the mark, the, the sign of authenticity for those who are in Christ is that they care about how Jesus looks in their lives, that they obey him, that they live holy lives because of the liberty that they have in Jesus. And now we see that those who don't do that are under judgment. They need to be careful. So the last question we're going to ask very quickly. Are these guys Christians? And there's plenty of reason to ask that because even though Peter's talking a lot about them being judged, them being under condemnation, he uses some weird language. He says in verse 1 that they are denying the master who bought them. In verse 20, he says they have escaped the defilement of the world through the knowledge of Jesus. And in 21, he says, it would be better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. So the implication is they knew Jesus. They knew the way of righteousness. The master bought them. Right? So, so how can they, for those of us who believe that once you are in Christ, you are secured in him, how do we deal with that? Remember the point of Second Peter. It's that you should confirm your calling and election. You should make it sure by going to the word, by hearing what Jesus says, by, by seeing evidence in your life. Make that sure. Why? Because you can't just say, hey, I said a prayer. I can do whatever I want. I'm in Christ. It's all good. Right? Peter says, no, there are, there are specific signs for these people. And these guys apparently came in looking like they had the evidence. Okay? They came in and looked like they understood. They got just enough of the understanding that they can twist it. Okay? They came in and looked like they had clean lives. But Peter says, no, no, they're showing themselves for who they really are now. And the example he gives is just like a dog returns to its vomit. It's not a pretty picture, right? Or just like a pig returns to the mire, so it will be with these guys. The point is you can clean them up. You can put on a show, but they're still a pig. It's still a dog, right? The nature has not changed. So these guys aren't Christians. They maybe have looked like it at first, but they're not. And that's why Peter says, confirm your calling and election. And so here's your application. Beware of false teachers. Get that filter in place. Go to the word. Test what you hear. See, does it fit with what the apostles delivered and the prophets delivered? Two, do not doubt God's return in judgment. He will. He will vindicate his name. It's a point of judgment to vindicate the name of the Lord. Three, do not trivialize sin. And four, wait eagerly for the rescue. We deliberately skipped two things in verses ten through or verses six through ten or five through nine, whatever it is. Peter says, God didn't spare the ancient world, and he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but what did he do? He spared Noah. He spared Lot. And the point is, if he rescued righteous Lot, and if he rescued Noah, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The judge of the earth is careful. He makes distinctions. Okay, So if I were one of, one of Peter's hearers and I said, wow, these guys have misled me. I, I believed them for a little bit. What's, what's going to happen to me? Am I under judgment? Peter says, no, no, God knows how to preserve the righteous. You trust in Christ. You reject these guys and trust in Christ. And the same for you. Every day we are assaulted with these lies about sexual liberty, about arrogance, that the world is about me 
and I need to get what I want. I need to be happy. We are enticed. And Peter says, no, hold firm to the truth. And even though everyone surrounding you falls prey to these lies, God knows how to make distinctions. And he will rescue the righteous. And he will hold the unrighteous under judgment. And he will vindicate his name. And so rest in Christ. Trust in his redemption. And wait for the Lord to come and vindicate his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for everything that's in Second Peter 2. And um, I pray that, that we would leave here and we would wrestle with hard things that we just heard. If, if that was heavy, if that was difficult for us to stomach, help us to go to your word and trust you and know that the judge of the earth will rule righteously. That you do not commit sin. You do not punish people undeservingly. But Father, you judge in equity. And I pray that for those of us who have not trusted Christ, who perhaps stand under that judgment, maybe those of us who have come and we have put on a face for years, we've put on a show, we look like we're legit. But deep inside we know there's something awry. Father, don't let that come out in evidence and prove us to be unbelievers, but redeem us. May we rest in Christ. May, may we throw ourselves on Jesus and trust in him and be spared the judgment that is inevitably coming on those who walk in unrighteousness. Father, make us holy people. Make us like Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.